turn in your copy of the scriptures or scroll in your Bible app to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. And as you do that, let me share with you uh, one last time. You'll see at the top of your bulletin, there is a Vote Pro-Life Yes on Two logo. And I wanted to explain that to you once again. Last week, all three campus pastors came before their flocks to raise an awareness of an issue that Kentucky citizens are voting on right now as early voting began last week. So we also decided as campus pastors, it would be best to briefly speak of this one last time since we're now under 48 hours from Election Day. On June 24th of this year, the Supreme Court handed down their decision in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which effectively overturned Roe v. Wade. This means many things. I'll highlight two of them for you now. First, given the laws in the various states that make up our nation, the overturning of Roe v. Wade would likely only reduce abortions by 12%. That's wonderfully sad news. Second, those of us who advocate for the sanctity of human life Now that this decision has been handed out, uh, for the pre-born had our work cut out for us. For almost 50 years, whether or not a state would permit abortions to be carried out wasn't truly on the table. Roe v. Wade denied citizens and state legislatures the right and opportunity to decide for themselves. But things are different now for which we praise God. Starting last week and going through Election Day Tuesday, which is two days from now, the citizens of Kentucky are voting on whether or not our state will amend the Kentucky Constitution to clearly state a fact, that it does not provide a right to an abortion or public abortion funding. And I want to raise this issue to you today to ask you to please pray. Please pray people would not fall victim to fear-mongering and misinformation coming from those who are opponents of this measure, saying that the amendment denies health care for women with ectopic pregnancies or those who have suffered a miscarriage. There's not a single pro-life doctor or hospital in the Commonwealth of Kentucky or in the country who would deny life-saving health care to any woman. Please pray that people would see this as what it is. This, for the state of Kentucky, is our Roe v. Wade. That's what this is. It's a watershed moment for our state. Grace Fellowship is apolitical by design and intent, but the Bible does not allow us to be amoral. We don't tell our church family who to vote for, but we do take the time to tell you what to vote for if you want to advocate for the preborn within our state. Pray with me that the citizens of our state will vote yes for Amendment 2. And that the Lord will use that to further protect the lives of the preborn for years and years to come. Join me in praying to that end right now. Father in heaven, we come before you uh, acknowledging that there will be a day when death will be no more. Oh Lord, how we look forward to that day uh, when sin and death and suffering and pain and tears will completely be gone. But Lord, as you tarry, we understand uh, that we live in a fallen, uh, sinful world. We understand that we ourselves are fallen, finite people. And so we ask you, Lord, to move within our hearts, within our minds, within this election, Lord, to do things to save the lives of preborn babies within the state of Kentucky. And move within our hearts and minds now as we look to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word from Luke chapter 15? Follow along silently as I read aloud Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. This is what the word of God says. 
And he, Jesus, said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in, the, in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you think we're taking a long time uh, to preach through the Gospel of Luke, you ain't seen nothing yet because we're going to spend this Sunday and the next two Sundays focusing on the parable of the prodigal son. We're going to camp it out right here turn off the seatbelt sign. You can move about the cabin if you need to. Because we're going to spend this time focusing on this very important teaching that the Lord lays out for us in Luke chapter 15. It contains some of the most poignant pictures that tell us so much about ourselves, our Savior, what he thinks of us as is demonstrated by his love, and as we saw last week, how we should treat others if we want to be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. These are things that we're not going to catch in a hurry. These are things we're not going to catch even at the pace of a leisurely walk. We need to stop. And so that's what we've done. It's the longest of Jesus' parables that we have recorded within the scriptures. It contains nuances and subtleties and cultural attitudes, all of which are worth our attention so we can best understand what Jesus was trying to convey. And so enough about the parable, let's get into the parable. Pick it up in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Stop. Now, I think many times when we read this parable, we think of it from the perspective of the father and what it must be like to have a child say, I'm moving out earlier than a parent thinks is wise. Or perhaps to have that child say it when you know that that child does not have a great value system, isn't thinking through things with a biblical lens. Uh, And it's it's happening sooner than the parents would be ready for. That might scratch the surface with regards to what the father would have felt at this time. But if it does scratch the surface, it's just barely. You might look at verse 12 and see this young man saying, gimme, and note that it's awfully rude to say gimme versus may I have, or would you please give me? It's presumptuous even to assume he has something coming to him, but this was a rich man seeing as he had hired servants, which we just read about, right? Uh, Seeing as he has a fattened animal to just kill at the drop of a hat for a party, so this man had coin. Still, it's a bit rude or presumptuous to ask for something that's not yet yours. I'll grant you that that's another application as well or something we could be feeling as we read this portion of scripture. 
I have a friend whose father uh, desired to give his kids, this is many years ago, desired to give his kids a rather large portion of what he had set aside for them by way of an inheritance uh, when he had passed because he wanted to see his son, his daughter-in-law, his grandkids enjoy it. It was very sweet. It was very kind. It enabled them to put a down payment on a home as well as sock a bunch away for the future. I mean, it was unbelievably great. The recipients were blessed. The giver was blessed. Everyone was blessed. It was an all-around win. It was great. And I think you and I would agree it's rare. Like that's a pretty rare occurrence in our culture. It's not like, oh, 50-50. Yeah, I bet one out of two people that happens uh, to all the time. I don't think if we were to poll the crowd today, we would say, yeah, that happens all the time. It's a blessing. But what I just described to you that happened to my friend, that's, that's pretty rare. Listen to me. What Jesus said the younger son was doing in asking his father for a share of the inheritance was not rarely done. It was never done. Ever. Not rarely done. Never done. Please understand, everyone in Jesus' audience was that many days old when they first heard of the concept of this ever happening. This was never done. The Bible has a lot to say about inheritances of both land and goods, and the Old Testament is full of biblical laws and principles that are wise to apply, which we can't look at today. God gave very clear instructions as to how that was to be handled. Nowhere in God's word is there like an asterisk pointing to a footnote saying, and here's how you ask for your share early. Never. Or here's how you say gimme. Nowhere. I mean, inheritance were in different sizes and contained different items and, and plots of land and actual money. They varied from person to person, of course, but the one thing they all had in common was that they are dispersed when the person, the giver, dies. Only after the father's death could the beneficiary, in this case the son, do whatever he wished with his inheritance. That was a, that was a given. That, that, that was assumed. He didn't, he didn't have to explain this. this. There's many things Jesus doesn't talk about. And sometimes people are like, well, if it's so important, why didn't Jesus talk about it? Good question. Because it was assumed. There's many things that Jesus didn't cover in his three years of earthly ministry because he didn't have to cover it. It was assumed. This would have been something that people would be like, yeah, that's super weird. That, like, we've never heard of this happening before, that somebody would ask their father, much less a younger son, would ask their father for what they have coming to them. And so, not only did Jesus' audience never, ever hear of such a thing, it would have been tantamount to the son saying, Father, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. Can we make like you're dead so I can get what I have coming to me. And so it's not only new for the audience to hear this, but understand what that father in that story and what the audience as they hear it would have understood. That, that father would have thought that his son is saying, I just wish you were dead. Can we make like you're dead so that I can get what I have coming to me? You, your presence in my life, your love, your leadership, your provision, your authority, your care, all of that I have literally no use for, no value for, you might as well be dead. In fact, it would be a little better if you were dead because then I could get mine. So can we just make believe you're dead so I can get what I have coming to me? That's how this would have been understood. 
Not rarely done, never done. And the equivalent of a son looking to his father saying, I wish you were dead. Just give me mine. And so the father would have felt way more than just, wow, boy's moving out sooner than I'd hoped. The father would have felt and thought two things. Number one, I'm as good as, I'm as, good as dead to my son. In fact, I'm better dead to my son than I am alive. And number two, I'm never going to see him again. I'm never going to see him Again, the son wants what is his, wants to leave, and intended to see his dad with about the same frequency he would have as if he were dead. And so the father responds towards the end of verse 12. It says, and he divided his property among them, which he can't really do, right? Because some of what he has set aside for his son is not... It's not tangible. It's not something he can take with him in his pockets. It's, it's land. It's, it's other things that he would like to give his son. And so here's the father dividing up what he has coming to him, knowing that his son wishes he was dead, knowing that he's likely never going to see his son again, and also knowing that all that he had set aside for his son, he can't even give him all of it because his son is insisting on having it now. And so if you could picture this, the father, yeah, I, I can, uh, yeah, I'll divide it up. I'll, I guess, I mean, I, I don't have anything equivalent to that, but I'll take this and you take th- this, but I could give you this. And I mean, I could, I could, I got, I could give you this and yeah, this, I guess would be yours. And verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. Into a far country. And so for first century Jews, there's God's country and not God's country. You understand that, right? It's not like today we're like, oh, Joe's going to a far country. Wow, that could be, is that where? It could be any number of places. Nor is it necessarily a negative thing. It could be an awesome thing. But when he says he he journeyed into a far country, in fact, he says that in verse 13. Look in verse 14. A famine arose in that country. Didn't need to say that. Uh, Verse 15, he went and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country. He didn't have to keep saying country, but Jesus is emphasizing he's going to a Gentile land. He's going far away, far outside of the borders of God's country and far away from God's people. Verse 13, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So not only did he take from his father, he didn't have it long. He would have had to have sold whatever he had at like garage sale prices on the futures market in order to get the cash he needed to get that instant gratification to do what he wanted, to be able to rebel against his father like he wanted to in reckless living. Reckless living, it means a lot of things, but I think it at least means one thing, unfettered, unrestricted sexual sin. We didn't read it today, but skip down to verse 30. Luke 15, verse 30. 
This is the older brother talking towards the end of the story, but he says what? But when this son of yours, who has what? Devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And you'll notice after he says that, neither Jesus nor the father, right, corrects him. Whoa, 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 you don't know that your brother did that. And so it's probably a pretty good sign that what's implied here is yet of the many things that this young man did recklessly, he was sinning in unbelievably lewd and sinful and sexual ways. Reckless living. Look at verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose, say it, in that country. Right? We're, reminding, we're being reminded once again, he's far away, far away. A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so thus far in the story, in the parable that Jesus is telling, the younger son was not in need. He got what he wanted. He could go out and do what he wanted. He had the resources to do what he wanted. He was not in need. But now uh, a famine uh, arose in that country. In fact, Jesus says it's a severe famine, and he began to be in need. Famines were unbelievably scary, unbelievably scary. I'm thoroughly convinced after studying them that we in the West in 21st century America cannot fathom a a famine. This is not grocery store prices are higher than they used to be, which is a pain. It's not a famine. This is not, I'm skipping a meal, which you will feel hungry, but it's not a famine. This is not even like I've gone a day without eating, but I will probably eat soon. Famines would have been such that crops were dried up, There is literally, literally zero food. And so it's the worst time in the world to be in need. Because what little food people have, they're going to hoard. And they're going to keep for themselves. They're not about to share because we don't know when the famine's going to pass. We don't know when the weather's going to improve. We don't know when this phenomenon is going to pass us. And so we have to be careful with what is ours. Things changed rather quickly for this young man. And people would have not been able to help him or not willing to help him. This is the worst thing that could happen to him in his earthly life. Granted, the famine wasn't the younger brother's fault, right? Now look what you did. No, that's not what happened. But given the way the story is being told, those listening would have likely understood this as the judgment of God for this seemingly irredeemable, unrescuable, irreverent, irresponsible young man. Verse 15 is worded interestingly. Take a look at it. It says, so he went and what? Hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Many of you, most of you have jobs, I think. Um, I'm guessing that none of you hired yourself yeah, I've decided I'm going to work here. Even if you are self-employed, even if you own your own business, you're, you didn't hire yourself. You started something. You didn't hire yourself. It's, it's, it's an odd way of wording it. 
It's a weird phrasing. But it conveys the idea that the relationship between the younger brother and this citizen of that country. So once again, he is now you know, yoking arms with becoming dependent upon a Gentile. This citizen of that country, whoever owned the, the, the pig farm, was a one-way relationship that the citizen likely did not initiate. In the Greek, the word means he not hired himself, but joined himself. It actually means in other parts of Greek would mean he glued himself, glued himself to this guy. Uh, I've not traveled a ton, but I've done a decent amount. I've been to other poorer parts of the world, um, whether it's in Eastern Europe or even in the Caribbean, where People who are in need and people who are begging for help literally hang on you. Literally, it's a physical, they're, they're, they're more aggressive. They're li- I remember being in a situation one time where I felt like I was shoving them aside, even though that wasn't my heart, but I was going to be pulled, like I had to just break free because there were like three people asking for help and could I give them money and could they have food? And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it could be very aggressive. That's what this, this is. This is this young man being so desperate, going up like, you got to, hey, hey, you got to help. Don't leave me, man. You got to help me. I need some food. You got to give me a job. You got to give me something. I need some food. I have nothing. I have nothing. Hunger will do that to you. Starvation will do that to you. And so he glues himself, joins himself to the citizen like, I'm not going to, I, I, I got to take me with you. You got to take me with you. And this citizen's like, yeah, hey, okay, okay, yeah. I, uh, hey, you know what? You should, you should be in the, I have pigs in the field. I have pigs in the field and you should go be with them also away from, from me and, and, and go over there and just maybe be, I, I've been looking for someone to be with the pigs to do things and again to be off of me so if you could just go there that would be great verse 16 it says what no one gave him anything so it wasn't a real job he didn't get paid this citizen had zero intention of ever paying him. There was no remuneration. There was no salary. He said, yeah, okay, go. Yeah, you go, go over there. Good, okay, good. All right, yeah, right. <clears throat> Sends him over into the pig pen. But nobody gave him anything. This wasn't a real job. Earlier in verse 16, it says, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. Uh, This would have meant he was likely losing his, his mind. Things are becoming appetizing to him that would never be remotely appetizing or tempting or luring ever in any other situation. But you can read about that in times of desperate, desperate hunger. People eating shoes. Uh, people eating things that are typically inedible. Cannibalism even. People uh, climbing the gallows of recently executed people and cutting them down because they were so desirous to not only have flesh but warm flesh. I fell down a little rabbit hole studying. But this is what hunger does to you. Uh, 
That's what's happening here. Pigs eat slop. Leftover food that would only be indigestible for humans. They'd be fed rinds, eggshells, husks, cobs, pods. The things that they're fed are not digestible by us. I take it, I don't have to explain or prove to you that we don't digest corn like we do other food. That's a little gross, but you all get the point. And I've just added a time that you'll now think about Jesus that you would have never thought about Jesus before. But we don't digest, our bodies don't digest corn like animals do, right? Like it's sometimes like, did I even chew it? It's a whole kernel. Like it's, 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 we don't, we don't digest things like animals digest food. The Greek word for pods, when he would long to be fed by the pods, it would have referred to, it's this Greek word, keraton or keration, I'm not saying it right. It would have referred to carob pods. These are, these are long string bean shaped seed pods with these hard seeds inside, these tough leathery shells. Almost useless. You can grind it into a powder and use it as a substitute for chocolate. Like, wow. You can, you can extract like a kind of molasses from it, pretty common in the Middle East. But that's about it. They're inedible. For humans, they're, in, they're, they're not digestible by humans. You can fill your belly with them and you can feel full, but you would have gained nothing from them. And so while you might feel full, you'll still, you're still starving. You're still dying. Listen to me. Everyone hearing this, this account would have known the younger brother is about to die. Die. It's not, oh, isn't it a shame he used to have such a nice house with his dad, and now he's, he lives with the pigs, and pigs are, there. the oinks oinks are, are smelly. Ew. He is about to die. He is on death's door. This was the end. The Pharisees would have known this as they heard Jesus tell the story and would have been like, yeah, he has what's coming to him. Like, Wow. After all he did, quite frankly, good riddance, after the shame that he brought his father and the shameful, reckless way he spent his, the inheritance on his hormones and the, the famine that was probably, like he didn't cause, but we're pretty sure he caused it, and his own sinful ways, get him out of here. This checks out. This makes sense. Let him die. Now, I know there are tons of application points to be drawn from Luke 15. So many of us last week, right, left with homework that we didn't expect to get from what was, I think, one of the best sermons I've ever heard Pastor Brad preach last Sunday. I've been here 16 years, but I was kind of fanboying before that. I think this would either be, literally be top, top five sermon, what Pastor Brad preached last week about loving people like Jesus loves people. I am confident that there are a number of dinner tables and Thanksgiving meals and Christmas dinners that will look differently because of what we saw in Luke 15. It's hard to overstate it. We must love like Jesus loved. And we need to love who Jesus loves. When things are lost but then found, it's worth partying. Lost, found, party. 
And now we're in a parable that talks not about things, but about people. And when people are lost but then found, we should party as they do in heaven. No question. Listen to me. You can look at the prodigal son and say, man, I've got to be more like that dad. Even if you're not a dad, I've got to be more like that dad. And that's true. But listen to me. You'll never be more like the father if you don't, watch, first, see yourself as the younger son. Ever. The title of the sermon is, You're That Guy. Which brings us to our first point. Number one, you're missing the point if you don't see the prodigal son as symbolic of you. You are missing the point if you don't see the prodigal son as symbolic of you. And when you read this parable and you think of the prodigal son, uh, uh, you might think of that prodigal son or prodigal daughter, if you're a parents of grown children, or even if they're not grown, just someone who seems to be, wow, just running in the furthest away, furthest, as fast as possible, far away from God. Or you might think of a friend who, if they were any further from God, they'd be the devil. Or you might think of a coworker or a group of people or a neighbor or whatever, and you think, this is a great reminder to me that God can even save them, that he saves to the uttermost, that he can rescue them. And friends, that is true. But you're missing the point if you don't see the prodigal son as symbolic of you and understand that this is a great reminder of how far off you were and would have would have been had Jesus not rescued you. You're that guy. I'm that guy. The prodigal is symbolic of every sinner who has ever lived past, present, and future. And you sit there and you're like, whoa, it's a pretty broad statement to say. Like just to a room of people, you think we're all, I mean, I don't, I know I'm a sinner, but I don't think I've, like, I've literally never done anything remotely close to what this guy has done. So how, how does the prodigal represent me? Here's how. God doesn't distinguish, distinguish between sins like we do. God doesn't distinguish between sins like we do. Sin is sin. I put verses in your outline. 1 John 5 and verse 17. All wrongdoing is what? Sin. First John 3 and verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Romans 3 verses uh, 22 and 23, for there is what? There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, James 2 and verse 10 reminds us that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And so, regardless of what the earthly, will call them the horizontal circumstances were surrounding your salvation, what your story is, you have to understand, God sees people in basically two categories. Him, not him. God, not God. Sinless, sinner. And it's going to look different for all of us, right? How we manifest our sinfulness looks different for all of us. But you're going to miss the point of this parable, if you don't first realize that that prodigal son is symbolic of every single sinner that has ever lived, of you, of me, of sinners like us. Before you were saved, you need to know that whether you were walking or running, you were headed to a far country. You were running away from God. 
And you're like, I don't think I, I, I can't even, I really don't think I was. I'm grateful that I was saved, but I don't know that I was, like, I can't look back on my life and see any time when I was, like, running from God. I know that's some people's story, and that's great, but, or you have people say, I don't really have an exciting what? Testimony. That's a sign that you're distinguishing between sins, and God does not do that. Anyone who's saved has an exciting testimony. Everyone who's saved has an exciting testimony because you were lost and you've been found because you were running away. Even if it didn't look like you were running away, you were in your heart, in your mind, running away, and God brought you back. Isaiah 53 and verse 6 says what? All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us. We have turned everyone to his own way. Your turn into your own way may not look the same way as I turn to my own way. But all of us are like sheep. We've all gone astray. We've all been rescued by God. 1 Peter 2 and verse 25 says, For you were straying like sheep. And regardless of the circumstances in your life when you were saved, if you don't see yourself as having been a long way off, you'll lack humble gratitude for having been saved because you'll think you kind of had it coming. Or you'll think, actually, if you look at my life, it, been, it actually would have been stranger for me to not be a Christian than to be one given my heritage, my morality, my upbringing, my name, my politics, my grades, my accomplishments, what have you. But that's not true because everybody who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ and who has saving faith and loves Jesus Christ only loves him because he first loved them and they would have never come on their own. Every one of us have gone astray to our own way and for every one of us who would believe the Lord laid upon Christ the iniquity of us all and we were headed to a far country and God by his sovereign saving rescuing grace brought us home. You're that guy. You're that guy. Before you think that this guy represents somebody other than you, first acknowledge you have more in common with this prodigal and the prodigal that's on your mind than you are dissimilar. You are more alike than you are unalike. The greatest point of the greatest story will be missed if you don't see the prodigal as symbolic of you. I mean, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about the fact that God doesn't distinguish between sins like you or I might? You might be like, I kind of wish maybe he would a little, right? The fact that my pride inside that nobody sees is looked upon the same as someone who is living in outward open rebellion That doesn't seem the same. And that's because we are looking at the outside, but God looks at what? The heart. And it's rebellion. We would rather God be dead and out of our way so that we could just do what we want, when we want, how we want. Point number two. You're missing the point if you don't know that you were headed for certain inescapable death apart from Christ. See, not only were each and every one of us a long way off in a far country, 
but we were headed for certain death without Christ. If we don't know that or we deny that, we are deluded. We are like the prodigal who is longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. Uh, Just as the younger brother was when he was sitting in that pig pen and thinking, you know what, I think I could eat that and feel better. I think I could eat that and feel better. I think I could eat the the, all the, the pig slop, and the, it's probably mixed with, with no, no question, mixed with poop and all bunch of other things. I, I, I mean, it's not the best. I wouldn't order it at a restaurant, but I could eat that and probably be better off. And God's like, you're, you're crazy. You're going to die. You're going to die. You are starving. I don't know. I feel full. That doesn't mean you're literally not starving. You're going to die. That's why one of the saddest things in the world is a happy non-Christian Enjoying life, prosperous, maybe even moral and upright, fun to be around, generous, kind, doing their best. They even look like they're doing their best, but they don't have Christ. And so while they look full and they're not emaciated, they're eating pig slop and carob pods and corn husks and all the things that won't leave you hungry but will leave you dead. Why? Because at the end of the day, Romans 6.23 is what it is. The wages of sin is what? Death. Not just the wages of big sins, not just the wages of of publicly offensive sins, not just high-handed sins. The wages of sin is death. James 1, 14 and following says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Not just certain kinds of sin. All sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's why Paul says what he says in Ephesians chapter 2 in your outline, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You say, wait a minute, who's he talking to? Is he only talking to the people who are literally doing things that would have caused them immediate death? He's talking to everybody in the church at Ephesus. You at one time were dead in your trespasses. Verse 2, in which you once walked. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Friend, any notion that God did not have to rescue you, rescue you from yourself, rescue you from sin, rescue you and rescue me from my own sinful nature is tantamount to sitting in a pig pen eating pig slop. And saying, I don't, it's not the best, but it's not that big a deal. You're that guy. Jesus didn't have to shed more blood for other sinners than you. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. So like, yeah, I sing along to that for the others so they don't feel bad. God, it wasn't my sin. Like my sin kind of held them there, but there's other sins that really held them there. It was my sin that held him there. And finally, closely related to that, you're missing the point if you don't know that it was solely by God's grace that you came to Christ. Solely by God's grace. The parable towards the end in verse 17 says this. But when he came to himself, 
He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. And so you look at that and you're like, I don't know, Pastor. It doesn't say, and then he felt convicted of his sin. Uh, It doesn't say, and then he realized what he was doing was going to kill him. It doesn't say, uh, and then he had a spiritual encounter with the Almighty God where he realized he was a sinner in need of a Savior. And actually, all it really says is, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? How is that by the grace of God? It just says he like, I think he, I think he did get tired of living in a pig pen. Well, look at Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5 in your outline. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That turnaround, that uh, when you pivot, when you go from running after sin to running after God, when you decide to stop running on the evil way and to finally go home to Christ, that's an act of God making you alive. Titus 3, verses 5 and following says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. So it's not like, I'll save you if you come to your senses. I'm waiting. I'll wait. You know the teacher in the front of the classroom? I'll wait. Remember that? Zeros. I don't even know what a zero means. Remember the teacher's like, I'll give you a zero. You get it? I'll just wait. I'll wait. You think that's God standing up in hell like, I'll wait. I'll save you, but you got to come to your, you got to come to your senses. We never would have come. Do you know Why? Because we're dead. Dead people don't speak things very loudly or clearly. Titus 3, verses 5 and following says, He saved us, look, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Gospel of John, verses Uh, Chapter 1, verses 12 and following. But who all who did receive him, ha-ha, see, we received him, right. Who believed in his name, he gave the what? He gave the right to become children of God who were born, here it is, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You were dead, and now you're alive. Every single one of us, regardless of background or story, was dead. How you manifested the fact that you were on the road to ruin will vary. What your pig pen looked like will vary. Exactly what the slop you ate looked like will will vary. But we were all a far way off, all in a pig pen, desperately in need of a savior, and we would have never chosen him apart from him quickening our hearts and making us alive. And once you come to the realization that it took just as much of Jesus' blood to save you as it did everyone else, and that you were just as headed for death and destruction as everyone else, and you were just as lost as anyone else, once you see yourself on level ground with every other sinner because God doesn't distinguish between sins, you can't help but wonder, God... Why me? Why choose me? Why save 
me? Why open my eyes? Why give me faith? Why love me? Even if you have never known a day when Jesus was not on your mind or heart, you think, why, why am I blessed with this social circle, with this family, with knowing Jesus at an early age? Why have my eyes been opened when so many others remain shut? Why has my heart been given life when so many others perish in their sin? But you'll never have that awe of your salvation if you read this parable and think of someone other than you as the prodigal and realize you're that guy. And so that's where I'm hoping this sermon will leave us today. Grateful awe, just astonished at great, shocked to be here, shocked. Grateful to be alive. I want to ask our worship teams to come forward at all across our church family, at all three of our campuses. As we prepare our hearts to celebrate communion, we're going to sing an old hymn by Isaac Watts called How Sweet and Awful is the Place. Awful is spelled with an E. It means full of awe. It's old English. What do you want me to do? It means full of awe. It's a great way to prepare our hearts to celebrate communion because Christians will resonate with the words of this hymn as you sing about the wonder as to why you would be saved when, or wonder when, when so many people choose starving in a pig pen, why were you made to hear God's voice? The fact that God drew us in with his love and if he hadn't, we would still be in our sin. And then even praying that God would run hard after people all over the nations, that he would have pity on the nations, that he would disrupt people's lives in pig pens all over the world and would save them and fill churches here on earth and the glorious church in heaven with more and more people who would sing of his grace and mercy. I want to invite you, as we sing this song, it's a new song to you, probably, I want to invite you to sing along, to focus on the words, which hopefully you're doing in every song. But when there's a lyric, when there's a word that provokes a thought or emotion in you and you think, that's me, I'm that God, that's, that's me, ooh, that, that describes what I'm feeling, I would love for you to raise your hand. I think it's one of the most beautiful things we can do in a corporate worship setting, how we could see our brothers and sisters, wow, that touched her heart also. Wow, that touched his heart also. Wow, these words are are moving our church family to praise God. And so I want to invite you to do that. And so would you stand at this time and let's sing together.